1: hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed podcast. And today we have Nicholas Pearson on the Unimpressed podcast today. And he is a Reiki teacher, Reiki master. And there's a few other Reikis uh, uh, that has a second word that I can't pronounce that I'm not familiar with, even though that I'm a practitioner and I want to welcome Nicholas to the show. And I'm unimpressed that I haven't met you until today.
0: (laughs) it's, It's my pleasure to be here. I'm really grateful that we can have this conversation about something so meaningful in my own life.
1: So you, we were talking earlier before we got on here, uh, this showed up in your life early. The Reiki showed up in your life early. How did that come about? What was your experience with that?
0: I was a really curious kid. I didn't grow up in a particularly spiritual household. Um, I like to say that my dad was raised really, really Catholic. So Catholic, in fact, that I wasn't raised as anything at all. And when other families, you know, did the religion thing on weekends, we went to the library. And I've had this profound love for all things, kind of spiritual world mythology and religion and folklore. And I, Kind of discovered the the realm of like the new age pretty early on, but I've also always had a firm foot planted in the realm of science at the same time. And I learned about things like energy healing and other kind of spiritual healing practices when I was, you know, relatively young, still an adolescent. And um, eventually, by the time I was twenty, I got the chance to actually enroll in Reiki training. That's been uh, 16 years now that I've been a practitioner, and it is in no uncertain terms something that has changed my life.
1: What did you feel? What happened as a kid? What did you notice as a kid? Did you feel energy coming out of your body at some point? What was what was that experience?
0: I think probably the the safest and broadest kind of a description is that I could say I was a really sensitive child. You know, other people's um, not just personalities, but, you know, their mental, emotional states. I I was pretty well aware of what people felt and thought around me. I don't consider myself particularly psychic or gifted in that regards. I'm just sensitive, just kind of uh, open. And mm-hmm. by the time I was, you know, maybe like 12 or 13, I'd, I'd really started uh, reading a lot about the paranormal, about metaphysics, um, really interested in the world of like, uh, rocks and minerals and how, um, you know, the, the science behind them just completely fascinates me to no end. But I also have a really profound love for their folkloric uses, their uses in like occult and ritual and, um, you know, world religious traditions. And I really love the application of them as a type of like energy medicine or energy healing through crystal healing. Um, and it was through pursuing that, that I began to explore subtle energies all around me, whether that was by meditating with a piece of quartz or a pebble I picked up from the parking lot. It didn't matter. All of it has a kind of energy or vibration to it. And as I began to explore that, other things came up on my horizon, so to speak. I I became aware of other kinds of practices, whether they're hands-on healing practices like Reiki or more meditative pursuits. And so I dabbled in a lot, um, as, as much as I could, you know, without formal training, without any kind of um, teacher or certification. And then by the time I was old enough to be able to, you know, pay for a class on my own and drive myself there, I was actively seeking teachers. And it just all kind of came together that I found the right teacher in the right space at the right time of my life uh, to get me started on the Reiki path. So that took that kind of innate sensitivity that I just kind of casually explored and brought it to new heights. There's a a lot in Reiki that I think we can experience as kind of peripheral effects of our practice. Some Mm -hmm. people have really visual experiences. Some people um, feel like their psychic skills increase. Some people come to Reiki specifically for that hands-on healing, whether they've already got some proficiency there uh, innately or they're trying to explore it for the first time. But, um, you know, all of these things kind of happen because the purpose of Reiki is getting in touch with the true self. Finding that mm-hmm. indwelling light, that presence, that spirit or consciousness that's already within us. It's already connected. But especially in the modern Western world, we we tend to drift away from that, uh, we'll say, platform, that paradigm that's programmed within us. So Reiki is the gradual process of remembering or recognizing that innate wholeness, that innate light, and being able to bring it forward. We mm-hmm. might feel that as energy flowing through us. We might Uh, Sense it as a a shift in subtle perception. We might come to it because there's that practical, almost like clinical hands-on application. We might come to it because it's a spiritual practice, first and foremost. Um, Whatever our avenue is, we often have in the Reiki community lots of, we'll say, perceived um fallout from it but you know really the purpose of reiki all of that is subsidiary to the purpose which is getting in touch with the spirit getting in touch with the true self and when we do that all of those other things they're they're just kind of icing on the cake
1: now my experience and i, I told you a little bit of, about myself and you didn't know um about my experience before we talked today what do you think about the projection of energy through your hand right?
0: The body is a miracle. We are constantly generating all kinds of energy, both the sorts we can measure, like in the electromagnetic spectrum and beyond, as well as what we term subtle energy, that kind of psychic or spiritual energy like we talk about when we use the term Reiki um, or other kinds of energy healing modalities. Um, if we just kind of measure the kinds of energies that are generated by healers' hands of many different traditions, not just specific to Reiki, but they've they've done empirical testing on on lots of, we'll say, energy healers. Um, And there are all sorts of measurable wavelengths that get emitted. Now, we can't prove that those measurable frequencies have anything to do with the effect of healing. We can't demonstrate in a clinical or lab-based setting that there's a causative relationship there, but we can sense that something strange is going on. Um, but we can also perceive a lot of these things if we have sensitive enough equipment, um, from any human being. And Mm -hmm. what that means is we all have this capacity and it's really just about learning to hone it. Now, um, Reiki as it was traditionally taught in the 1920s in Japan when it was founded by the founder who, who actually created the system 100 years ago this year uh, in 1922. Um, you know, hands-on healing was kind of the side effect of his quest for for inner peace, what we call Anshin Ritsume in Japanese, kind of a pervading peace that is the hallmark of enlightenment. Um, he, he wasn't seeking uh, a method of projecting energy. He wasn't, pers- you know, trying to you know, carve out a niche form of spiritual healing. That was all a byproduct of his quest for um, connecting to that kind of cosmic force that's already within us. And um, I think it is interesting how in the intervening 100 years, the concept of Reiki has really kind of flipped the script. You know, people come to it because it's a means of energy healing, of projecting energy, of controlling energy, when at the core, it was always about surrenders. For me, the practice really comes from showing up every day and, you know, working with the five precepts, those kind of guiding principles that the founder gave to us, um, working with hands on healing as a means of getting in touch with my heart, with my mind, with my body, with my spirit, of coming into the present moment. I've seen some pretty miraculous things, mm-hmm. physical, emotional, spiritual healing wise, um, but I also recognize that those are the side effects of Reiki. They're not the purpose of it. So the, the founder of the system of Reiki makes it very clear. He, he didn't write a lot down. We have exactly two documents that, that are in his own words. One of them are the five precepts, that, you know, the five kind of principles, core to the practice. Another one is a short little question and answer booklet. And the opening part of that is called the Kokai Denju Setsume in Japanese, which means the explanation of open teaching. And um, pretty unusual for a Japanese Spiritual practice. He delineates upfront that um, you know, oftentimes founders of spiritual praxes um, hand things down to a select few. Oftentimes they're kept in that kind of, um, we'll say, hereditary lineage, and this was you know very very common in his era, a hundred years ago in Meiji era Japan and and prior. But his experience of awakening, we'll call it, on Mount Kurama in spring of 1922, um, showed up him, and therefore the, the rest of us, that Reiki is present in all things. Hiring for your small business?
1: If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: All people receive it equally. All people have the same ability. There is nothing that makes one person more predetermined or more special or uh, more able to perform Reiki because the... The idea behind Reiki, if we look at the actual words in Japanese, they point to something that is non-dual, that is not separate, that is not linear. Um, so therefore, it's an all or nothing thing. We we all have equal access to it. We might not all be called. That's a different kind of conversation. Um, but the only thing that makes us, we'll say, more effective is practice itself. So, um, you know, even within the system of Reiki, the, the actual branches of it have offshoots from that kind of main lineage. And no particular offshoot is more powerful or less powerful. No particular teaching or technique is more powerful or less powerful. Um, The more initiations, or what they call attunements in the West, uh, doesn't make you more powerful or less powerful. The only thing that makes us more effective as practitioners is practice itself. And that totally takes the ego part out of it. it. It also means that we all have the same hand. So once we receive that Reiki attunement or initiation, we all have the same ability because we're all connected to the same source. There's only one Reiki and it's in everything. Um, he tells mm-hmm. us that um, there is nothing in the universe without Reiki. So that means there is no person, there is no blade of grass, there is no molecule of air. There is no little bit of starlight in the atmosphere, in the night sky that is without Reiki. We, we are all one. In that kind of cosmic force that is the the phenomena of reiki and not just the practice of reiki
1: the structure was set up for a purpose right but would that not limit the thought process to some extent because they say if you you know if you create a style you create a category you know to some extent you crystallize growth you can have guidelines but sometimes maybe those guidelines are there to put you in the right direction but Maybe there's something to build off those guidelines. Is there any thought you have about that?
0: I mean, that's the nature of an esoteric order, right? You know, it's you receive the teaching that you are prepared for and you work that teaching until it helps you get to the next level. We might have external factors, like whether we've enrolled in a first degree class, a second degree class, third degree class, and so on and so forth. But all of the development is internal. So we have external tools because we are here in a materially oriented world. I I have a physical body. Therefore I'm bound by certain laws, at least certain times I'm bound by certain laws. Mm-hmm. And those external things are are tools to assist us. If we confuse the map for the territory, they become hindrances. The, um, the things like the symbols and mantras and even the five precepts or the ritual of initiation or attunement. Those are external tools. They're guiding us toward an internal experience. They are a map. And that internal experience is the territory itself that only we can walk through. So, you know, if I point to Antarctica on a map or on a globe, I'm not into Antarctica. I only understand where it is relative to where I am right now. So those Mm. external things could limit us if if we conflate what they symbolize for what they are
1: you know with the western world and and what's been indoctrinated in in our thought process for many years it's a very odd conversation in today's time to get those indoctrinated thought processes to somewhat open up more to something like this
0: we always have to consider cultural context and temporal context you know reiki didn't spring up fully formed as we know it today It has been a century's worth of evolution. There are some, you know, certainly mythologized versions of Reiki history that insinuate it's a lot older. It's not, but um, how how it was practiced originally, how it was taught for the last four years of the founder's life after his uh, awakening experience in uh, spring of 1922 until he passed away peacefully in 1926, um, he he taught for the people of his time. He taught for the context in which he lived. And when Reiki transmigrated, when it moved outside of its culture and country of origin, it had to adapt. It had to grow. It had to change. It had to meet us where we're at as outsiders. So I think Reiki has always had growth and adaptation to it. Reiki began moving outside of its country of origin as as early as um, 1935 or so. So we're seeing, you know, within the first nine, nine years after the founder passed, significant evolution is taking place. There's always been um, this kind of need to meet people where they're at. And again, that kind of goes down to what an esoteric practice is. Um, something that is esoteric is, um, you know, more or less designed to work for people with a specified body of knowledge or practice. Um, or experience. So, you know, when we are beginners, we enroll in the first degree because we may not have any background. So we receive an experience together. It's up to us to take that baton and do something with it. And then some mm-hmm. of us will be called to move to the second degree. And originally, as, as Reiki was taught, it was kind of like an ongoing mentorship. You didn't just enroll in a weekend seminar and get your certification. It was a long process. Of the more than 2,000 students that Usui Sensei, the founder of Reiki, had in those last four years of his life, less than 1% of them became teachers, what we call shihan in Japanese or maybe Reiki master um, in English. Um, less than 1% um, uh, for a number of factors. And we, we can conjecture what they might all have been. But certainly one of them is that it was an esoteric system. And it was it was designed to be oriented towards internal growth. So it's not just the external enroll in a class and you get the thing. That's a mm-hmm. Western mindset. So Mm -hmm. I like to always reframe things, recontextualize things back to where they started. That Mm -hmm. doesn't mean how they've grown or changed is bad, but if we look at the trajectory of where it's been, we understand where we are now. It also helps us understand where we're headed with the system of Reiki or with anything else for that matter.
1: Now, when Reiki was first brought uh, to the United States, do you find it interesting that it was brought in Hawaii? Did you study anything about that when it was first brought to the U.S.? Because they say Kauai is one of the, you know, biggest energy points uh, in the world today. That's something you've ever touched on with your studies?
0: The woman who is responsible for most of the transmigration, her name was Hawaii Takata. She was born in 1900 on Christmas Eve before Hawaii was even a state. It was just a U.S. territory. Um, So in the mid-30s, she traveled back to Japan and encountered, uh, uh, purportedly, that was her first encounter with Reiki. We've, we've come up with some evidence that suggests there were other practitioners in Hawaii first. They just didn't necessarily contribute to the spread of it. However, she was so enthusiastic, she became a practitioner and eventually a, a teacher um, to begin you know transmitting the system in, in Hawaii. And she lived in Hilo, not necessarily in, in Kauai. Um, she lived uh, in a relatively small community. Um, she sponsored her teacher, to come to Hawaii and together they co-taught hundreds of students over a period of several months before he returned to Japan. And then um, she continued the spread of it. Um, I I don't think it had anything to do with, you know, Hawaii being a a center of some sort of mystical energy and just the fact that it was a densely, um, you know, what we call Nisei or second generation Japanese immigrant um, community. Uh, Mm -hmm. without, without people of Japanese origin living there, Reiki would not have been there. So we have to look at the, you know, what, what the likeliest answer there is. I, I'm really big on the data. So the data tell Mm -hmm. us that Hawaii Otakata was headed back to Japan for some medical procedures and for some family related stuff. And she, she was able to study Reiki there. And then she went back to her home, which is in Hawaii. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, you know, not until post World War II that she really began to to travel in depth and and you know teach on the mainland in North America and eventually other parts of the world.
1: Well, you have a very very grounded, very grounded position with Reiki, which is, is good for me because I haven't spoke to m- many people, or I haven't spoke to anybody really that has such a grounded position uh about reiki and i think uh that's good for me to understand more balance because you can you can take things uh as extreme as you want to in this space and i mean that's interesting to have your take and you know relating that to stones what kind of experiences have you had with stones i wear uh a moldavite uh and the moldavite found me uh i found it in a in a store and Brooklyn and now I live in Charleston, South Carolina. What is your experience with that?
0: Well, long before I came to the realm of Reiki, I was fascinated with all things rock and gem. I got my first like proper mineral specimen at the age of eight. So that's almost three decades later, I'm still collecting. Um, and the majority of my published works have been about um, gem therapy or crystal healing, the kind of mystical side of of all things rock and mineral. And, um, yeah, it's it's a really big part of my life there are gems that I work with every single day there are um, rocks and minerals all around me in my office and everywhere else in my life that I can fit them but um, you know my my approach to working with them is is a little bit different I, I try to wear more of a science hat with them because although we have no means of quantifying subtle energy because it's by its very definition it is subtle we, we can't quantify it but we can quantify things. Um, that crystals do, that rocks and minerals and crystal structures do with other kinds of energy. So I use those as models for understanding what's really happening on that subtle level. And the thing that is extraordinary about crystals is that um, they have this kind of regular formation, regular structure, a regular composition um, that is very harmonious, that is uh, very geometrically sound and symmetrical, and it repeats quite reliably. And when substances are really ordered at their kind of structural, that foundational level, the energies they emit are similarly ordered. We as human beings are not. You know, the If we just take a look at the electromagnetism generated by our fields as a whole, um, the rhythm of our head is not the same as the rhythm of our heart. Um, our, our lungs and our liver are doing different things made out of slightly different substances. They're, they're gonna generate different kinds of electromagnetic fields. Um, so we are not coherent uh, electromagnetically, but crystals are. And when a higher amplitude, a more coherent field comes into contact with a less coherent field of a lower amplitude or like lower volume, they begin to sync up. And that louder, more perfect field becomes a template for the other one to kind of be synchronized by. Um, so when we work with crystals on one hand, they are entraining us, uh, we'll say, energetically speaking to be a little bit more crystalline. And we can observe there, there is enough rich and robust data that shows that when our electromagnetic field, particularly of the the brain and the heart become more coherent, um, that changes mood, uh, perception, mental affect, that changes all sorts of neurotransmitters, chemical and electrical alike, and that cascades through the body. Um, And eventually we get to this point where a subtle energy parallels a, a measurable energy, which changes our field, which changes how we feel, which changes the chemicals and electrical impulses in our body. And energy eventually transcends pathology.
1: Now have you had any experience with a moldavite?
0: Yeah, I got my first moldite probably around the age of like thirteen or fourteen, so twenty plus years ago. Um it is non-crystalline, is a natural glass that is formed by meteoritic impact. So it's not the meteorite itself, it's terrestrial stuff like sand or soil um, that got turned into a glass. It was vitrified because of this uh, impact. Um, And, you know, there are all sorts of great stories about it. I I really love the mythology of it being this kind of emerald green glass, uh, an emerald colored gemstone that fell from the sky because it kind of closely mimics the, we'll say the mythology of the Holy Grail or the emerald tablet or all these other kind of emerald colored gems that are said to have descended from the heavens. And it is a really alchemical kind of stone. It it synthesizes disparate things to support our evolutionary progress.
1: You said you work with stones on a daily basis. What is your number one type of stone that you go to? or you utilize in your life?
0: Oh, there's so many. These days uh, I have a really profound love affair with uh, a rock called spotted dolerite. So I'm actually wearing some of my pendant here and I've got some around my wrist. Um, But this particular variety of dolerite is only found in a, a small district in Wales called Pembrokeshire. And it's actually the same material that was used for part of the construction of Stonehenge as well as dozens of other megalithic structures In Great Britain, and it has this really deep earth energy. But it's also by virtue of those kind of whitish colored flecks in there, it's said to resemble the stars against the sky. So it kind of links heaven and earth and allows us to um, recognize our role as mediators between those to be grounded, but also to have that expanded state of awareness. Um, It's really great as kind of like a, we'll say, Psychic self-defense, it fortifies the energy body to be less permeable to outside influences. It's a a really wonderful stone for accelerating all kinds of healing processes at the spiritual and psychological levels. Um, it's one that we sometimes use to do things like past life regression. But this is a stone that I wear essentially every day of my life. Currently, at least in this chapter I'm living, but there are other gems that have been that kind of everyday support at at different points in my life too.
1: speaking of stones, you have a book coming out, you know, with the book that you have coming out. It's about stones, uh, if you will. Right.
0: Yeah. So my next book to drop is called Crystal Basics Pocket Encyclopedia, and it'll be here in early 2023. It's essentially like an encyclopedia of 450 rocks, minerals, gemstones, crystals and fossils.
1: What are you currently doing?
0: So I am a tutor with the College of Psychic Studies. I've, I've guest lectured at universities as well, but um, you know, the College of Psychic Studies is not a, a classic college or university um, like we think of here in the States. Um, so I, I work with them remotely mostly, but I'll be headed over there in the springtime and we'll plan a series of events. I teach classes. Uh, online every single month. I also lead online Reiki practice sessions that I facilitate like little monthly free um, Reiki shares. I have a pretty busy schedule teaching. Part of the reason, I'd say largely the main reason that I write is because I love to teach and I love to teach because I love to learn. So all of this is really just um, an extension of that desire to be able to share, to grow, to study, um, and to uplift the community through that kind of research-based work that i do
1: now do you do you have a goal in mind do you what do you want to experience what do you want to achieve in the next three years with what you're doing in your life
0: on a personal level i would really love to do more community growth uh in in reiki in particular um one of my roles that i try to fulfill as often as possible is bridging lineages because too often separate factions or schools or lineages um, just kind of stay in their own lane and it's easy for there to be misunderstandings between them. And since I have learned many, but maintain no like official affiliations, if you will, to any one particular lineage, um, I work really hard on outreach. Uh, I also do a lot of outreach between my spiritual work and um, like scientific communities. So I consider myself a lay science communicator Um, And I I really try to improve scientific literacy among metaphysical people, because I think that's really helpful, particularly in the crystal healing world, because it's it's hard to get that taken seriously when it's not a credible thing that we have measured in a, a lab setting. And it's even harder when the people trying to describe it don't understand what rocks and minerals are in the first place. So um, those are ongoing goals that I've got and things that I, I work toward every single day. And I just can't wait to see those continue to, to grow.
1: How do you approach something when someone says, you know, because I'm from the South, right, Baptist, Baptist Church, you know, and there's a lot of S- Southern organized religions that, you know, spoke up against stones and, and so forth, saying they're voodoo and so forth. How do you How do you deal with that resistance?
0: I mean, quite frankly, I would invite them to look at their source material. There are hundreds, if not thousands of instances where gemstones, as well as rocks, minerals and and other geologic substances are mentioned in the Bible. Sometimes specific spiritual virtues of those gems are described. They feature very prominently in the visions of New Jerusalem. We see them in the Book of Exodus in the breastplate of Aaron. Um, there, there there's so many places where gems are mentioned in the Bible and there are dozens of books written about this, that I, I would ask them why something that has, you know, since the beginning of time been revered as sacred because the divine created it is demonized suddenly. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, we have plenty of biblical and rabbinic scholars who've looked at the role of these gems, uh, in, in religion for thousands of years. And this is cross-cultural. We can certainly use biblical references to gemstones to to communicate in these particular communities, but I'd also, you know, urge people to look at the fact that this is human nature. Um, Some of the earliest archaeological evidence that we have of of humans collecting quartz crystals may go as far back as 450,000 years. There's there's a couple really significant finds that are pre-homo sapiens, like pre-modern humans, um, where these hominids... Collected quartz crystals, sometimes traveled with them across great distances. Um, so they are they are now left with remains that are being discovered far, far, far from where they were mined. The, the idea that something that has been regarded as sacred and special for almost half a million years is suddenly being demonized is just kind of silly to me. Like, it, it's all made by God, if, if we want to use their language, their terminology. So why is something made by God? That is supporting the well-being of people that is offering them hope maybe a little bit of peace in a very noisy and not so peaceful world why is that evil and um, you know i would just invite people to reflect on what the motivation is behind these claims
1: here's a good question for you i want to see how you respond to this one is uh or how you would approach this um this kind of a reverse psychology kind of reverse engineering the psychology is or some organized religions right we say You know, earlier in our conversation, we talked about Reiki and say everybody has these abilities, right? We are electrical type bodies with our our chakras, with chakras and energy flowing through us. And it has been said that organized religion was structured to separate man from spirit. What is your thought about that comment?
0: I mean, I'm no theologian. So, you know, I want to preface this by saying I I can only comment as far as what I've studied and experienced. And if we look at what the word religion itself actually means, it it comes from a, a Latin root that means to bind, to connect. And it was actually originally intended to be a way to link humankind with the divine. But the way power is distributed among religion today, the way um, society structures power, um, is often focused on removing that kind of sovereignty and agency from the individual and placing it into an external authority. But I don't believe that external authority was necessarily the goal of early uh, religious praxis. Um, We live in a different kind of world than the people who wrote the Bible. We live in a different kind of world than the Buddha did, than... Uh, Muhammad did than any of the world's great philosophers and religious founders and leaders did. So, you know, I understand where we are is a product of a very, very long process. And so if people find religion to be limiting and binding, I would encourage them to find ways to cultivate presence, to find tools and techniques that give them a sense of hope and agency Maybe that's something as subtle as Reiki, which is itself non-religious. It is a, a universal kind of method. Um, maybe it's through meditation or you know other simple things. We don't necessarily have to change the flavor of our religion necessarily to, to have that kind of restoration of agency and sovereignty, but recognizing that we don't have to outsource, we don't have to find an other voice to tell us what the divine is saying, That's a really powerful experience. And I think it's one that more people um, are going to turn to each and every day.
1: Well, I mean, I think that's a, I mean, that's a great answer. I mean, I, we talked about sensitivities too, at the beginning of this, and I've, I don't know, this popped in my head one day. I said, life is about sensitivities and percentages because the sensitivities will create the percentages of anything. So I think when you dive into those types of questions, I think you have to measure the percentages of weight and how that's been perpetuated over time. You know, some of this ideology can be broken down, I think, the right way to make people understand why narratives are created like they are the intentions you know we all start with good intentions but sometimes with commercialism and and trying to survive and 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 things that are pressed against you to try to live your life other percentages come into play that creates a different narrative and uh i wish uh more people would understand that because it uh would it would open the spectrum to some extent instead of standing strong on one narrative when they don't even know what the foundation is. Does that make sense to you?
0: Yeah, and you know, it comes back to that idea of always building context, which is so pivotal, so crucial to the work that I do, is examining where things came from, to understand how we got to where we are and therefore what we do for that next step together. And so long as we have people having those conversations, I am really hopeful about what those next chapters look like.
1: If you really wanna have a good, understanding of what Reiki is. Nicholas has a great foundation and great narrative of you know, history, where it comes from, what it is. Uh check him out. He's got a new book with stones coming out February twenty eighth. He's got some precursors happening before that. Um but we'll put all this information attached to the episode, but check that out. And uh yeah man, it was a great conversation. I like your narrative. I like your uh, responses, and it's a very grounded response. And I'll, uh, I'll definitely try to find this spotted dolerite and see if I can add that to my collection as well.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And if you ever need help tracking down a specific rock, just let me know. I'd be happy to send you in the right direction.
1: This is Reiki master Nicholas Pearson. I'm John edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions.